guys, Sophia here. I'm so excited to be back in your ears for the return of Girl Boss Radio. We took a little break over the holidays and then for a little while after that so we could rest, reflect, and come back with a show that's smarter, more impactful, more entertaining, and more useful than ever before because Girl Boss is all about improving and evolving at every turn. Today I'm back with a guest I'm giddy with excitement over, someone who embodies the idea of living and pursuing success on your own terms, and someone who is literally changing the future of some of the most broiest industries you can think of for the better. I'm talking about Reshma Sajani, the founder of Girls Who Code. In her new book, Brave Not Perfect, Fear Less, Fail More, and Live Bolder, Reshma argues that there's a stark cultural difference in how we are raising boys and girls to approach risk-taking and failure. If you're an athlete, right, and you're you're trying to get excellent at the sport you're at, you're going to get a lot of failure and a lot of rejection. And we often don't let our girls feel that way, but we encourage our boys to feel that way because we think that we have to toughen them up in the world. The end result, she says, is that we all lean toward what we're good at and become afraid of stepping out of our comfort zone. And then we come to see failure as a thing to avoid at all costs. But that's obviously not a status quo we can get comfortable with here at Girl Boss. So what's the solution? Reshma walks me through it in our conversation ahead. I guess where I want to start is, you know, you grew up the daughter of refugees and you're, you know, looking at your educational history, it seems like you were an all-star student, but you applied to Yale Law School three times, two times and you were rejected, three times before finally being accepted, where did you get that resilience? Where did that come come from? And obviously, from an early point in your life, you were comfortable with bravery. Yeah, or like a, being an obsessive compulsive. Um, you know, I, I went to Schomburg High School. Like, in my high school, like, nobody went to Ivy Leagues, right? Everybody went to state school. And I had it in my head from the time that I was like 12 or 13, I had like snuck into my parents' basement and I'd watched this movie, The Accused, and I fell in love with Kelly McGillis. And I was like, I want to be, I want to be a lawyer. And if I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to go to the best law school, right? Because I was still the perfect girl that wanted to get straight A's and it was Yale. And so I remember having my father, you know, at that time photocopy the U.S. News and World Report tack it up on my refrigerator and I would just look at it every day. I uh, ended up going to the University of Illinois Urbana because that's what my family could afford and um, just couldn't wait to get out of there and finish so I could go to Yale Law School. Mm-hmm. Graduated at the top of my class, took the LSAT, did not do well. Applied, didn't get in, right? Mm-hmm. But I was not okay going to the other amazing schools that I had gotten into because I had it in my head that if I got into Yale right? That every door would open for me. Mm-hmm. As a daughter of refugees, as a woman of color, right? As someone who came from a working class background. And I just couldn't let go of that dream. And I kept applying every year and then getting rejected and applying every year. And I put my whole life on hold. Um, you know, eventually I got in. I like convinced the dean of the law school to like let me basically go. And he was like, if you get into the top 10% of all the amazing schools that you've got into, I will let you come. And that's what ended up happening. But it was a huge lesson. I mean, maybe it was a lesson about resiliency, right? And like, don't ever give up on your dream. But it was also a lesson of like, I put so much of my life on hold for a credential that at the end of the day, I really think, Sophia, like, even if I didn't go to Yale Law School, 
I would probably still be sitting here. Yeah. So you, I mean, it seems like at the time you were brave and looking for perfection and you've now kind of reframed that in your career and you've reframed it for a lot of women and you have, you know, part of that is our journey of actually realizing that we're not perfect because when we're young, you know, it seems like doors are going to all, they're all going to fly open, you know, for us, whether we have the right degree or not. Um, and realize very quickly that life is a lot harder than Mm -hmm. they said it might be, even if we took a very prescribed path in our education or careers. And you've, you know, you've had your setbacks. um, Oh my God, so many setbacks. I can say that I relate. Um, (laughs) But you went into finance. I want to just talk a little bit about your job in finance. And after that, you know, you, you quit and you ran for office. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like I, it, it was weird to find myself in finance when I clearly knew at 13 that I wanted to change the world. Right. And it's like working in finance, like the opposite of changing the world. But I also grew up like 300, I also finished law school, $300,000 in student loan debt. And I watched kind of my entire Yale law school class essentially go to white shoe law firms and, you know, I'm, I remember getting my first paycheck at Davis Polk and Wardwell as a summer associate. And it was more money than, you know, my parents had made, you know, working for, you know, three months of their life, four months of their life, right? So, and I remember my father, like, framed my first paycheck. So, again, working in what shoe law firms, working in finance was the good Indian girl thing to do. And I naively thought that, well, I I would pay off those student loans in like a year or two and take off the golden handcuffs and then go change the world. And I realized that like that didn't happen, right? With uh, two, you know, it wasn't going to take me two years. It was going to take me 10 years Um, or even longer. I'm still paying off my student loan debt. And so kind of woke up at age 33 working in finance, hating my job. I remember having this kind of moment where I'm sitting there and the financial crisis is happening. I'm working at a trading desk, not knowing what, you know, and I'm like on the phone with my father who's worried that he's going to lose his home. And I'm like, where the fuck am I? You know, and ended up quitting and then running for Congress in a race that I had no chance of winning, but didn't know any better because I was just so excited to be free and, you know, what to, to be following what we say in Hinduism is like your dharma, right? Like I was finally doing what I wanted to do, which was just serve people for good. And then you ran for office, and this is in 2010, and you got a lot of press. You were the first Indian-American woman to run for Congress. Tell me about that experience. You said you were really naive. What is the result of being really naive? My incumbent had been there for 18 years, and um, it's kind of like a no-no in democratic politics. Like, you don't challenge incumbents, Mm. regardless if they're not effective or they, you know, aren't doing a good job representing their constituents. You just don't. It's like a no-no. And I thought that that was kind of crazy, right? I thought that, you know, if you felt like you had good ideas and you wanted to serve and you felt like you could make a difference, if anything, we just needed, we need more voices, more younger voices, more women of color, more women, you know, running running in office. And so, so I ran. And I really pissed off the establishment. Mm. And it just, it broke my heart because I saw all these women who I looked up to and admire just kind of look at me and say, no, it's, 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 you know, wait your turn, you know, get back in line. And I thought that that was wrong. 
I thought that we were never really going to change politics or really change anything if we had that attitude even amongst ourselves in the, in the party. Mm-hmm. Turns out I couldn't shake every hand and meet every voter and that there was the power of entrenched incumbency. Um, I got my ass kicked. <laughs> like I'm mean, I got like less than 19% of the vote. It wasn't even close. And the thing was is like I definitely went into election day thinking that I was going to win. Um, because of course, when you meet people like standing on subway stops telling them to vote for you, everybody's voting for you, you know, like everybody's got you. And, um, I couldn't do it. I didn't do it. And I w- I had no contingency plan. I didn't even have a concession speech in my purse. Hmm. But you ran twice. Then I did it again. Cause here's <laughs> the thing about running and losing. You're like, Oh, like, I'll do it better next time. And I, I made so many mistakes in my first race. Like, I didn't run authentically as me. I was, you know, I used to memorize my stump speech. I used to dress like, you know, like with a, a boxy J. Crew, you know what I mean, jacket. Mm-hmm. I was didn't want to be young and, you know, people to think I wasn't experienced. So I tried to sound, be the perfect leader and sound really smart. And uh, I couldn't relate. I couldn't connect. And I didn't even feel like I was fully present. It was like I was an actor trying to, like, fill a position. And so when I decided to run for public advocate, I was a deputy public advocate. And I really felt like I knew that office. I knew how to do a good job in that office. And at that time, I felt like well, the thing that I that we needed in our education system is to teach more kids how to code because coding was the future. And um, we were leaving far too many kids in New York City behind. And so I ran on a platform of computer science education for all. I ran authentically as me. And I lost. And that was painful because I had I had less regrets, right, about the type of campaign that I ran, about my message, about who, how I felt. And, and that, that loss in many ways was much harder for me because I felt rejected. And you, but during that loss, that was really kind of where you found your path. With yes. Girls Who I Code did. and seeing firsthand the gender gap in STEM. Why did that issue become such a sticking point for you? Well, you know, right when I was running for public advocate, I launched Girls Who Code, and I started my race for public advocate. And for me, that issue was that issue came to me out of my race for 2010 because when I lost my race for 2010, I said, you know what, I'm not going back to the private sector. This is my life. I'm going to be a public servant. And if all the things that I saw on the trail, what is the one place where I feel like I can make an impact and serve people the most and serve women and girls the most? And I really felt like it was coding. Because at that time, like, Dorsey was launching Twitter. Zuckerberg was launching Facebook. And I was like, there's all these dudes launching these tech companies. When I know the consumer base is female, where are the girls? Mm-hmm. And so that was the issue that I really latched onto and that I felt really the most passionate about. And I would come home every day as a deputy public advocate working on Girls Who Code. And then that was like my side hustle. And then two years kind of into my side hustle, I'm like, okay, I think this is ready to be some, like a real organization. But at the same time, I had this deep passion to run for public advocate. So I ended up launching both initiatives at the same time. I lose my race for public advocate, and I have two choices. Either I can go do something else, or I could go deep into my organization and, like, kind of reach my goal of, like, trying to teach a million girls how to compete a program. And in many ways, because I feel, I felt that sense of rejection, I was like, okay, if the voters of New York City are not going to give me the opportunity to teach girls in New York how to code, I'm going to do it myself. And it was so crazy, because, like, recently we had a meeting with the Department of Education, and I was, and I, I did it. Six years later, we've taught more girls to code than the entire 
city of New York has. And, you know, we have so many listeners who are starting businesses. We all have an advantage if we understand how to code. We can move beyond the platforms that are kind of uh, straight out of a box for us. So for our listeners who are interested in pivoting to a STEM field, what advice would you give? I mean, just do it. It's never too late. You know, I've had girls who are homeless, who don't have Wi-Fi at home who don't have computers, you know, in their schools. I've seen them come in like wireframe ideas about climate change and, you know, understand and and build algorithms. So to me, it doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is, your age, like you can, it's never too late. And I think you just have to go into the mindset of like being open to learning a new skill, especially a skill that you may think that you don't have the capacity to do. Hey guys, if you don't know about it, we have our fifth ever Girl Boss Rally coming up here in Los Angeles on the UCLA campus. We're all gonna go back to school. This is the school of life for you. We're gonna bring together 2,300 women from dozens of countries to hear a hundred of the most inspiring, accomplished entrepreneurs, business leaders, and industry experts over the course of two days here in sunny Los Angeles this June 29th and 30th. If you want to learn more and register for the Girl Boss Rally, just go to girlbossrally.com. See you there. I want to go back to pivoting because so many of our listeners are in transition. Pretty much everyone's in transition. Mm-hmm. If we're not, if it's not the main thing, it's the maybe thing, it's a side thing. And that's a struggle because we're supposed to pick one thing and go down that path. And you've done a very good job of not picking one thing. No, I pick um, a lot of things. You pick, yeah. And I think a lot of us do and want to, but we don't know how. For someone who's looking to change fields or transition into something totally different, what would, you, what would your advice be? So I talk about this in my, my new book, Brave Now Perfect. I mean, just start. So for Girls Who Code, I just bought the URL. And then I talked to somebody about it at a conference. And then I talked to somebody. I t- you know what I mean? I took too many steps to quit. And I think oftentimes for a lot of your listeners and, my, and, and people in my community, it's like we talk ourselves in, out of ideas before we even start. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know. And here's a crazy thing. Like, Sophia, I'm not a coder. I was terrified of hmm. math and science. I started this organization when I was publicly humiliated and lost, had the biggest loss of my life. Like, I, I should never have started it, and this organization shouldn't exist because in many ways I'm the wrong person to have done it. Right? So everything was working against me. And, like, I feel like in many ways my story is, like, you just don't know where failure leads you. And had I listened – because I – had I listened to someone – because a lot of people have a lot to say. Why would you start a coding organization when you don't know how to code? You know what I mean, why would you start a nonprofit when you've never started a nonprofit before? You know, there was always there's so many reasons why I shouldn't woulda coulda, right? But I just didn't listen to anyone. I just kind of followed my heart. And because like I had lost that race and I had not died, because sometimes we think failure is going to break us and it didn't break me. It made my ability to take risks and to try greater. You know, I thought I had processed it, and now I'm starting to write another book, and I'm realizing how little of my experience of failure I've actually processed. Mm. And so you can totally keep running and running, and I did. I jumped up. I started building Girl Boss like right away after Nasty Gal, but I'm now realizing how much 
it affected me. And it is, I'm still fearful and, you know, held back in ways that I wasn't before when I was naive, but I also have like a really great kind of hindsight. You know, for all that is said for resilience, I do want to ask you, like, have you grappled with the actual feeling of failure, even though you've gone on to be brave? Like internally, that's not always what we feel every day. What's your experience been like with, no, with that? No, I mean, for sure I haven't. I feel like the hack on failure is to give yourself a finite time to brood about it and to think about it and to analyze it and then to move on. And I think that you go into your deep places like to learn, but you shouldn't stay there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like for, and I, I know, listen, don't don't think that when I see people running for office that I don't have a large jolt of envy and then every year or two like I have to ask myself the question or I have to say to myself is a reason why you keep telling everybody you don't want to run because you're afraid to lose mm. so it's not like all of that failure doesn't come back to haunt you in certain ways tell me about it I see my friends my friends my peers there's this incredible generation of women starting businesses um not starting businesses who are building them to the size that I built nasty gal and I watch and I'm like oh my god mm-hmm. I did that but I didn't pull it off like and it is really hard to watch even though that's you know that that's the past and I'm doing something new and I feel really good about that it can be very hard to watch people win at the thing that you lost at yes I think the thing that you have to recognize is that so many of them watched us fail mm-hmm. and learned from our mistakes yeah. and they've told me that And so that's amazing, right? Because we are one part of such a longer journey and a longer conversation. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. But I I guess I guess I have a lot of faith in like, you know, it's funny. I I have a lot of faith in the fact that uh, life is long and that everything happens for a reason. And it's just not long enough for us to look back and be like, oh, that's why my company failed. Yeah. It's a marathon, not a race. And when you're at the front, when you're the person doing it first and you don't have peers, when you're on the front lines, you get slaughtered first. That's just how it works in war and everything. And so you experience all of the adversity and blowback. And yeah, other people watch and they learn their own lessons. Nobody's like successful because they watched us do it. But it definitely, we've shown people where the landmines are, which hurts for us, but it's also a great service to the grand scheme of the many people who can watch that and find confidence because of it. Thousand percent. You talk a lot about perfection and and bravery, and we're talking about women running for Congress. I'm talking about women starting businesses. This this theme of perfection is, you know, as you've said, gendered. Why do you think it's gendered? Where where does this point back to? Where does this originate? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, girls are raised to be perfect. Think about it. You know, they say as young as 30 months, girls build very kind of stable blocks that have like a story with them, and boys just kind of build high and just break them down. You know, I have a I have a four and a half year old son and I think about, you know, his swimming class, right? When like the girls are learning how to swim, you know, the parents are like, It's okay, honey. You don't have to get your face wet. I mean, it's a swimming class, right? Yeah. And the boys are just like pushing them into the deep end 
trying to teach them how to be fearless and how to be risk takers. And that extends to the time we are then teenagers and older where we just get so accustomed to perfectionism and to accolades. So like our parents, for girls, they naturally want to protect us and coddle us, not just from injury, but then from emotional pain, which comes from a lot of fear and rejection, right? I mean, you know that when you're, if you're an athlete, right, and you're you're trying to get excellent at the sport you're at, you're going to get a lot of failure and a lot of rejection. And we often don't let our girls feel that way, but we encourage our boys to feel that way because we think that we have to toughen them up in the world. How do you define bravery? You know, I don't, I think bravery is not about, you know, slaying dragons or like jumping out of a building that's on fire. I think bravery is about kind of really basically living the life that you want to live and like living a joyful life and making choices that are not about other people but are about yourself. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, failing forward and, you know, failure as a great thing. But you you think about failure differently in that if you're brave up front, the way you evaluate whether you were successful or you failed is different because you weren't approaching it the same with the same expectations. Is that Yeah, it's like Yeah, I mean I think that's the difference between like excellence and perfection, right? Excellence is like it's not about the end goal, but it's about the journey. Mm-hmm. Right? You're taking pride in the effort that you put into it, not in necessarily in the outcome. And you've written an entire book about this. Tell me about Brave Not Perfect. Tell me about why why did you write this book? So I gave a TED Talk in 2016 about this idea of, you know, being brave, not perfect. I had really, you know, I've been working on issues for women and girls pretty much my whole life. And I looked at, you know, I looked at, I looked up basically in my late 30s. And I'm like, why hasn't anything changed? And I looked at my girls and I said, you know what? I see so much of this starting when we're really young. And there was this example, like when they were learning how to code, they were not able to show kind of the progress that they had made in learning how to code because they didn't want to show their mistakes. And to me, it became so emblematic about the way that we kind of approach our life and our careers, right? We gravitate towards things that we're good at. You know, we have this feeling like if I can't do it perfectly, why even bother to try? And so I gave this talk and I got, you know, millions of views. And so I didn't want to write a book, but I was like, oh, gosh, let me see if there is something out there. I really spent like three years doing research about whether there is this idea that, you know, we can unlearn perfectionism and that bravery is the antidote, right, to to perfectionism. And I really believe that it is. And I think, Sophia, what's so crazy right now is, I mean, we have four women running for president. You have seen women take down some of the most powerful men in the world, so you're really seeing courage and bravery on the biggest stage. But what I'm talking about is everyday bravery. Everyday bravery that every woman, if she exercised, would live a joyful life. So that means getting out of that toxic relationship. That means when you get cut off in the Starbucks line saying something. That means when someone in a meeting tells you to go get the water because you're the woman in the room, you basically tell them to piss off, right? Mm -hmm. It means not silencing ourselves, using our voice, not worried about being polite. It means as working moms going to work out at 730 in the morning instead of taking care of everybody in the household like I always do because you're taking something for yourself. And I think that when you learn everyday bravery – when women learn to be courageous in their everyday lives, we will take over the world. 
You won't see four women running for president. You'll see 50 women running for president. And by the way, I'm the person who uh, talks to the person in the Starbucks line. <laughs> I, I highly recommend you say, excuse, excuse me, I was, I was in line. Um, people are really, sometimes they don't even see, they don't realize they did it, which is even scarier. <laughs> like, but you, you also see women, and I'm this person who like, someone pushes you and you're like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait, why am I apologizing? Like you pushed me. No, um, I think my blood boils and I scowl. <laughs> <laughs> and so one thing we talk a lot about, and this just is so, so perfect um, for this conversation is this concept of success. And the concept of success is really, in, in culture, is really yep. equitable to perfection. And, but redefining success, right? It's different for all of us. And it can mean something that is maybe a little softer than, you know, being on the cover of a financial magazine or uh, making a ton of money or having being married at the right age or whatever that yeah. may be. What is your definition of success? I think success and having a successful life is in many ways living a life without any regrets. You know, I don't think it's about getting this award or that promotion or that job because I do think like in this success-driven culture, we're never satisfied. And I don't know if you feel that way. Like I felt there's so many examples where something amazing will happen, right? And then something really trivial will not happen. And all day I'll focus on the thing that didn't happen. And I'm like, why am I doing that to myself, Yeah. right? Like we, in the success-driven culture, we just don't know how to ever celebrate the wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's painful. It's just like, it's when does so it end? Painful. When does it end? When, do I, when will I find peace? You know, it's an addiction and it's dangerous and social media makes it even harder on us to, you know, feel okay with where we are and not care about what other people think and rate ourselves on our own you know, concept of success, which even if, you know, every woman who comes on this podcast has a great answer to that question. But at the end of the day, we're all still grappling with actually living up to that. I do think the older you get, the less you care about this stuff. So I I think that women, you know, in their 20s and 30s and and 40s are still really, you know, uh, we're hard on ourselves. Like that voice in our head is is so much louder. But I I mean, I also think, though, that I, I believe you can unlearn this. And I do think that you fall on and off the wagon, but like the more conscious you are, you know, of it, I think the better, right? And the more you can kind of dampen that voice. Do you have a mantra for that? I mean, I have practices. So like, you know, I think it's important to practice imperfection and like whether it's like sending an email with a typo in it. And so you realize that the world is not going to end, you know, like walking out of the house without shaving your legs, like not taking 50 selfies before you post the perfect one. Cause you know, your men don't do that. Right. Mm. It's like really practicing imperfection and like feeling how freeing that is. And it paves the way for other people to look like not face tuned or <laughs> retouched. <laughs> yeah. When I was doing focus groups, the amount of young women who had two Instagram accounts, one for their real life and one for their fake life was just that can't feel good to be having that weigh on you, you know, in, in something so, in some ways, so trivial as your social media life, mm-hmm. right? Think about the big decisions that then happen in your life. I just want the things that actually happen in my real life to be all that matters. You know, I don't really want to be a voyeur in the way that we've all become. I want to rate my life on how I feel and who I'm around and the accomplishments that happen in arm's length away 
rather than, you know, light years away, even though we are making a huge impact at Girl Boss, it's easy to get wrapped up in that rabbit hole rather than thinking about our lives on a more personal level. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it's amazing what you've done with your career and the and the setbacks you've had and the pivots that you've had and that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have been able to do that. There is something in the way that you were raised. There is something in your practice and your mantras that make you able to do that because a lot of people can't. You know, I've gotten criticism in the press too and like... I remember when I was running for Congress, my father, you know, he didn't have internet at home and he would just like read the comment sections and be like, this is Reshma's dad. Don't say that about her. But like the worst. (laughs) It's really it was dark if you started reading the things that people said about you and people are mean. It is. It's brave, but it's also goes back to that feeling of never ending. I need more achievement you know Mm -hmm. I you know it's called I guess the hedonic treadmill which is yes it's resilient yes not a lot of people could have done that but at the same time maybe I'm just more possessed or tortured it's like hard to know what's driving you it's goodness and sometimes it is like being really tough on yourself so yeah well you want to get an A plus in life I know that's what's driving you yay right staying relevant yay yeah and you want to reach your fullest (laughs) potential I mean that's me like I want to reach my fullest potential and so if that for you and what that means for you it might and me might be different than what that means for other people right but it's the same it's a, we're we're fighting the same demons yeah well mainly it means that you get to keep learning and if you keep finding a place for yourself to do that you're doing something healthy and your motivations are right and so we have something called girl boss moments on this podcast and a girl boss moment is kind of anything but it's really the time in your most recent history where you felt really proud of something that maybe was a different type of success or something that you did for someone else that wasn't an obligation. What is your most recent girl boss moment? In some ways it is this book because for me, I have a really, like I'm super open and honest about everything that happens to me from my miscarriages to like my failures to my insecurities about my weight or, you know, but I've had to go to, you know, to even deeper levels because I'm also a very private person And I really feel like in many ways, like kind of God gives you what you could take and God gives me a lot uh, because I can take a lot. But it also means that like I have the capacity to share a lot. So like if I've gone through something and I feel this way in a a lot with my fertility struggles, like I want to be able to share that pain with other people so they don't have to go through it. And so much of so many times I feel like we feel so shameful right, about the things that happen to us and about admitting that vulnerability that we go in our holes and we don't share. Mm-hmm. I feel like my girl boss moment is really kind of letting go of that and, and, and being able to share my kind of deepest, darkest moments. Well, thank you for sharing those with us today. It's been such a pleasure to finally, yeah, put you a know. voice to a name. Well, let me know when you're in New York and I'll let you know when I'm in LA because I'd love to go grab a drink. Okay, I'd love that too. I will, absolutely. That's it for today's episode. I hope you'll stay with us for this new season. It's going to be great. We have big things planned for Girl Boss Radio, as well as some changes. You're not just going to be hearing from me each week, but also from another powerhouse on the Girl Boss team, Neha Gandhi. Neha is our chief operating officer here at Girl Boss, and she'll join me on Girl Boss Radio every other week as host. And next week, she'll be chatting with trailblazing journalist and Women of the World founder, Tina Brown. Fun fact. 
Tina is the only woman to have ever edited The New Yorker throughout the magazine's entire storied history. And her candid advice about tackling sexism is worth taking notes on. Hope to see you back here next week. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Girlboss Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow at Girlboss, at Girlboss Rally, me at Sophia Maruso, and Neha Gandhi, our chief operating officer, at Neha in Town. And remember, we just launched registration for our upcoming Girlboss Rally. We'll be back in Los Angeles on the UCLA campus, June 29th and 30th. So check out girlbossrally.com to reserve your spot now. <laughs>